Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of uh, Thriving Adoptees. And today I'm joined by the lovely Sue Armstrong Brown. Lovely to see you. We've just been talking about March, March Madness and the fact that, uh, well, this won't go out until probably October. Uh, sorry, we'll get to April. Um, but yeah, the sun is shining in the UK and we are delighted to see that. It's fantastic. Yes, um, I've shed some of my many, many layers that I've been working in for the last three months because I'm, I'm working at home like everybody in a converted garage, which is my office, um, which is really, really nice in the sunshine. So it's got big windows that they flood in through, but really not at all nice um, for the cold weather, which we've mostly been having because I've got flat roof and exposed walls on all, all three sides. So yeah temperature really plummets in here but the risk of coming to this interview without my woolly socks on <laughs> I won't regret it great so uh, please sue uh, can you introduce everybody and, and tell them a little bit about uh, yourself from uh, like a personal perspective and obviously a professional perspective yeah great. well i'm my name's sue armstrong brown i'm the chief executive of adoption uk which is the charity that works um to connect support and influence on behalf of adoptive families and individuals um, and I'm also an adoptive mother, which is why I've come to be in this role, because I have having spent all my life pretty much working in charities, but not in um, children's social care sector. I adopted my daughter, set up as an environmental consultant, deciding I was going to freelance and have a lovely, flexible lifestyle and then saw this role advertised. And it was one of those moments where you think, OK, well, I'm I'm just going to have to go and do that now. Yeah. Uh, my plans, I have so carefully set up all got dumped in a moment um, and my husband switched roles and took a more flexible role and I applied to this role um, and I haven't regretted it for a second. Brilliant, delightful, yeah. So um, at this stage in the podcast, I like to ask what, um, what people, you know, what people think of when they hear this phrase, thriving adoptees. So this podcast is all about thriving adoptees and helping adoptees thrive. What what does that mean to, to, to you, Sue? It's... It's my aspiration. It's pretty much, it's a two word summary of the whole purpose of Adoption UK as a charity. We've got a much longer form expression of that. Um, and we've got a whole list of values and a great big several page strategy, but you've just summed it up in two words. Um, Adoption UK exists because of the, the unequal start that many adopted people have um, and, the, and the early experiences that many adoptees go through. Um, and the need to, to ensure that families are supported as they, as they grow together. Um, and we all know, we all know that um, in some cases, very sadly, those early experiences mean that adopted young people really struggle and that struggle continues with their relationships, with their school, with their ambitions in life um, and their own sense of self. And to be able to talk about thriving is, is the perfect, to me, the perfect expression of what we hope for, for people who've um, who've been adopted in early life. And we want them to thrive. We want them yeah. to be able to go on and live their lives in a way that means something to them, yeah. whatever that is. And, and thriving is the perfect expression of that. Wow. Wow, brilliant. Um, so would you, could, uh, would you mind talking a little bit about becoming an adoptive mother? Would that be okay? Because I, I, I don't want yeah. to cry, you know, you just share what you, I, I, I guess I'm trying to get um, uh, the the reason that you took. You, you've been talking a lot about yeah. the role that you're in, but it's why you became an adoptive mother and and why that role attracted yeah. you. And then I guess what I really love to talk about it from both senses in terms of what do you think it is that that helps those adoptees thrive, or what you, kind of yeah. what you've learned because. There's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts um, in the adoption space. A lot of them uh, are story in the adoptee space. It's a, a lot about um, stories, and um, and they are inspirational. But I I want to do I want to do more than that. I want to you know help uh, pro prompt other people to other insight their own insights. Uh, and I also you know in the in the um, the adoptive for the adoptive parents there's a lot of adoption um, podcasts there too. And some of those are quite story-based and quite logistical. And I want to get to that 
thriving bit you know the kind of the emotional the real the heart of the matter so yeah over to you so why why i decided to adopt um it's probably a really common story uh something like i think it's more than more than there's around three quarters i can't remember the exact figure of adopters come to adoption through infertility and that was true for me i already had a son um, but I had a very strong sense and my husband and I both had a very strong sense that our family wasn't yet complete. Um, and of course, we could have we could have just lived with that thought. Um, we tried. I was one of the crazed people that go through multiple um, assisted fertility attempts, um, probably far too long. But I'm very, very bad at giving up on things once I started doing them. Uh. Um, um, but, but we weren't successful. Um, and so adoption seemed like the obvious thing to explore. Um, so we did start to look at it. And I think there were there were many moments when we could have stopped because we managed to time it so bad so badly that we um, embarked on our adoption journey just in that 2014 2015 downturn in adoption when the, the there'd been various issues in the courts um, and we can talk about more if you like but the the whole system had swung right away from um, choosing adoption as a permanent route for children in care. Um, so we got stuck in that for about four years in delays, delay after delay. We switched agencies. We um, it took two years rather than six months for us to go through the, the approvals and training and prep process. And then another two years for us to be matched just because of all the delays that the system was, was incurring. Then, so there were many times when we could have just said and we nearly did just just stop. This is this is going on for too long. This is blighting our lives too much. But I'll always remember my little boy um, sitting in the car when we were driving somewhere and he was he probably was around five or four that sort of age and he sat in the back seat and said why am I sitting here all by myself wow and it was just one of those childhood questions um and we said oh well you know because um the mummies and daddies sit in the front and the children sit in the back or we gave a very prosaic answer but it really lived with me and it expressed his sense that he shouldn't be the only child and he, as he said it in multiple ways before that, when is my baby coming sort of thing. But that was the one that really okay. lived with me. And it made me realize it's not just us as parents that felt our family needed to have four. It was him as a child also. Wow. And so we kept going. Wow. Delighted that we did because we adopted our daughter and she is an absolute dream. She is a wonderful, wonderful human. Um, and she has completed our family. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's, that's great. You know, my, um, yeah, I don't know what to say rather than I, I was about to turn it back on myself and say my mum and dad, uh, you know, uh, adopted through the fertility issue, you know, yeah. um, but that's, that's true. But um, uh, I want to keep, I want to keep the focus on you because I can talk all day. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 you and me both, Simon. Sorry, you go both. So let's, so let's let's. Um, uh, do you want to share anything about your, your daughter? Or would you prefer to kind of move on to the you know why you saw this role that you know you you, you kind of decided to to go flexible to look after your daughter presumably, yeah. uh, and then you saw this opportunity. Do you want to talk about more about your daughter, or do you want to get straight into the kind of the opportunity in the adoption UK stuff? Well, one probably leads to the other, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, as we as we were going through this process, this very protracted process of adoption, um, we learned more and more and more about adoption. And having come to it, as many people do, um, from a very introspective perspective, where we were thinking about our needs and what we wanted as a family, of course, we then learned about adoption and about the 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 parallel route that the children are taking towards adoption. Um, and the more we learned, the more motivated I became because it just felt right. It just felt like something I wanted to move towards rather than away from the more we understood about early challenges, exposure in the womb, um, adverse childhood experiences and so on. Um, that pulled me rather than pushed me away. And I think that was, seeing this job advertised was a continuation of that. It, it was all making so much sense that this is something we should be involved in. We should be making a contribution. Um, and that we were seeing all these um, children through all unique stories, but all with that shared characteristic of having not been able to remain with their birth parents and having had experience of being in the care system and being the sense of being really washed along 
on a whole multiplicity of different chances and fates and things that they had absolutely no control over, wholly dependent and very vulnerable um, and dependent on being placed somewhere where they could, as in your words, thrive. I felt, I felt like I wanted to be part of something that would help and something that would complete that story in a positive way. So that motivated us to stay with adoption, but it also motivated me when this job came up, that this was a world I really wanted to step into further. Yeah. Um, it felt like, so I'd, I'd had, I started life as a research scientist. I keep reinventing this. I started life as a research scientist um, and then went to work in, in charities on environmental issues. Um, and then I set up as a free, as an environmental consultant. And so I'd, I'd spent all this time working in charities, really felt like this was everything coming together because it was my personal passion for adoption all my work experience in charities coming together in one role just at the right time. Um, so, so yes, it, it did. It, it, I really spent about two and a half milliseconds thinking about whether or not I should apply for that. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it's all the, uh, I was just listening, I was walking the, 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 the dog before I came on today. I was listening to a podcast about a, a guy who was a Paralympian athlete and uh, he'd got, he'd, 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 he'd bombed out of the team, you know, um, and, he, and he, he went through a down period and then he happened to try out, at, 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 you know, at a cycle, the velodrome at Manchester. And he happened to meet somebody that happened to become his uh, that happened to become his pilot because he's partially sighted this guy. So they, yeah. they, 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 that's, that's, you know, they, they ride on a tandem, you know, and the, 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 the pilot sights and the other guys behind. And it was a, com it's, the reason I'm talking about it is because it's a combination of kind of, this seems totally natural. Everything seems to have led up. I'm getting sort of like goosebumps on this one, really. Um, everything seems to have been going that way, but the actual um, the twist of fate, the twist of fate, or the you know the coincidence or the serendipity, whatever we call it, it's those two things kind of come together. And I think that you know often we 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 look at one or the other. It's either it, it's either you know the culmination of everything. Or it's serendipity, and and what you're sharing to me now is it's it's both in your case, and it was both in this case for this guy because you know he wanted to be a, um, you know, a, 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 he wanted to get to the Olympics, you know, he wanted to get to the, he'd got to the Paralympics, he'd, he'd got that, um, and but he'd been ninth, so he hadn't been in the, he hadn't he'd been bombed out of the team because he didn't make the you know the final in, in sprinting, and then he then three years later whatever he becomes so so it's the combination of both. You know, um, your, uh, you know, your persistence, you have overcome a lot of barriers, as you say, you know, the twist and the turns of, of where the um, adoption landscape went. You just kept going. You just kept going. You just kept going. And then it, everything kind of clicked into place and, 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 uh, and, and uh, both in terms of your adopted daughter and, and the role that you're doing so it's a lovely way to think of it some some would say it's pig-headed stubbornness well yeah <laughs> yeah um and it's funny because my own story is if i'm feeling if i'm feeling up um then you know like oh i'm being stubborn i'm just i'm just you know kind of chasing a lost cause or you know if i'm feeling higher you know in a, in a higher mood like I am now talking to you then this is this is my life this is what I'm meant to do you know so my whole view on what I'm doing is in, in as an adoptee a coach to adoptees and adoptive parents um that changes according to where my moods are you know um and yeah sometimes I just think well you're just too stubborn you know but there's it's stubbornness and it's uh, you know um blind optimism but that's a good thing. Do you know what, what, what <laughs> somebody, somebody shared that with me. I heard somebody talking about it. Um, one of my mentors about, you know, blind optimism is a good thing. And I thought, well, I, I've seen that as like naivety. You know, I've seen that naivety. Keeping going is keeping going. That, you know, 
it's everybody's kind of living in a world that's so about it's so much about mindset when actually what really matters is keeping going keeping going so i think so and, and it's, it's particularly relevant um when we're when we're talking about a lot of adoptive families and these people you are working with daily um we often we often talk about resilience in adoption don't we um we know that something like two-thirds possibly higher proportion of adoptive families are going to need support as a result of um, the early experiences that their child their children have had um, and we often get we often talk about the resilience that these families display in the face of really sometimes really very significant challenges um, and I get two responses when I talk about resilience in, the, in, in adoption and one is um, an endorsement and yes you know, the out of adversity comes the, the ability to deal with it um, and comes the sort of determination to overcome these challenges and find out and, and do the research and learn the, the lessons and find out what it is that will help um, on that journey towards thriving. Um, and the other reaction is, is really negative and um, accuses me of, of saying, or us of saying, anyone who said it, of, of um, using resilience as a fig leaf to hide the failures of the adoption system, which so often mean that adoptive parents are fighting for the support their children need, and so often mean that adopted children are having an awful time in school or being excluded, or are struggling to find employment or struggling to, in social relationships. Um, and, and talking about resilience in the context of that just is, is trying to dress up and, and sprinkle fairy dust over an unacceptably bad situation. And I absolutely see both those sides. I do think adoptive parents and adopted children develop a certain resilience, which isn't demanded of families who don't face those challenges. But I also think it shouldn't be glorified um, because it's coming out of adversity and it's adversity that's a result of social failings most of the time. Wow. Um, you've just given me two completely different takes on resilience, which I love. And I could talk to, I, I could talk about that resilience stuff. Um, uh, like um, most things uh, all day so uh, you know it for you is it a big part of thriving what you know is it an ingredient of thriving what is what what are the what are the ingredients drivers processes that uh, you know what is it you know uh, what are the things that help help adoptees thrive oh that's such a good question i don't think i necessarily can give you the answer i want to give you because i feel like i don't really know enough but what, what I will tell you is we've just done a piece of research that was funded by um, Children in Need, um, working with adopted young people. And incidentally, I've been saying adopted young people, and I noticed you've been saying adoptees, and that's in the name of your podcast. Um, and that's another area that's quite interesting, and I'd like your thoughts on this, actually, because some adopted young people have told us that, that the word adoptee makes them feel a bit like a they're characterised and, and defined by something that happened in their past. Whereas adopted young person is that's a young person who happened to have been yeah. adopted, but others haven't felt like that. So, so that's an interesting sort of little cul-de-sac I've just led us down. Coming back to your question, um, the the young people we spoke to about what would help them most told us really clearly that the things that they need are to not grow up feeling like they're the only one, to grow up with a, a cohort of others who were also adopted and have had some shared experiences so that they don't feel like they're the exception and they don't feel like they're always having to explain fundamental things about themselves. So not growing up alone is, is I think, a really important ingredient. And another one is having trusted adults around them in a world where adults haven't always been easy to trust or, or have changed too often and trusting relationships have been fractured or in some way difficult to, to have. Having trusting relationships outside your, your immediate family is crucially important. So these are things that are gonna help us um, work out how we work with adopted young people in future. Yeah. And another one is um, having access to the right support at the right time. And that's one we've known for a long time, but it's really interesting to hear young people telling us that access to the right support at the right time to help them work through some of the things that have happened in their past um, is something that they want to have as well. So I think there's loads of ingredients. I wouldn't say that just putting those in place would automatically lead you to thriving because I think there's other things that would need to be um, true as well. And two that I'd pull out are 
um, much more help for adopted young people to to inhabit their past, to have a, a strong, positive sense of self-identity. And we, we don't see life story work being done anything like in the depth we need um, with children coming out of the adoption system today. So that's one thing I think we really need to, to look at in more detail. And the other one is an understanding of the developmental aspects of early trauma, because where a young person is dealing with something like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, half the time, half the time a huge amount of the time, it's, it's not diagnosed and not, not recognised. And that young child is um, growing up with a sense of, of difficulty and challenge that just isn't there for others. And I think we need to have a far, far greater understanding of these things right from the get-go so that adopted young people aren't shouldering that whole burden of all the things that have happened in their past alone without, without true understanding from the professionals around them who, who need to be much more aware and, and know much more about what's, what it is that that young person needs to thrive. I feel like I'm giving you really long answers, but you're asking me really difficult questions and I feel I need to work my way into them. Uh, it's funny because I always, I say pretty much exactly the same thing when I'm guesting on podcasts. I say, I'm sorry, I can't give you a, a I can't give you, that was a long answer to a very short question. I say anything to that. So um, you and me both, right? And and I think that's what, I, I, heard, a, I heard a podcast yesterday and, and it was a series of questions and there was no follow-up. There's no, there was no depth to it. Well, there were, so the, this, it was interesting because it was two people interviewing one two women interviewing one man. And it was almost like an FAQ. So short answer, short question, short answer, short question, short answer. Follow up question, back to another question. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't, there was no depth to it. And what we're talking about here has incredible depth. So there are no short answers. Um, there are no, sh you know, short answers don't do the don't don't do, do do the depth justice. And go back to the me too thing. So, what you said at the top of the uh, top uh, at the top of the of the thrive part was um, not feeling alone. And and I did that because I guess I, I whether I've attuned whatever I'm I'm into a kind of like empathy zone I'm I, I'm a lot I'm, I'm sure I've still got a long way to go on empathy but I'm a lot better than I used to be I used to be really terrible I'm a little bit better now so I I did that kind of like I empathize back to you just because it's routine for me because I am and I did that by saying to you um yeah I give long answers to short questions mm -hmm. these are important questions and they they deserve depth, um, but we don't live in a world that, that is about depth. We live in a world that's about sound bites, and um, and my example of that also leads into what we were talking about. You know, you said adoptees, adoptees, adopted children. Um, I came up with the word thriving adoptees as shorthand. Um, I don't. Um, I I I. I don't refer to myself as I am an adoptee apart from any apart from a professional capacity I would say um I'm adopted I'm adopted yeah more like more yeah and I think I mean I do think adoptee is a is a very clear summarized way of, of talking about what we're talking about so yeah I do use it sometimes as well it's, it's just interesting to hear the different takes on it yeah um I try not to get too hung up on the vocabulary um uh and uh, I think I did, I did another podcast and I kind of like apologise for that um, because because I, I, I'm, I'm, it's where my empathy sometimes goes off because I'll use a shorthand to get to the next question or to get to the whatever or, 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 to, or to follow up and, and, it, and, I can, I can, and I can lose people because I'm using uh, vocabulary that they don't like. So um, I think we all do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's your empathy coming back. So um, what I'd like to ask you a follow up on the thriving um, bit, given our audience today is adopted parents. 
and adoptees. So if we were talking about the adoptive parents, uh, we're talking to the adoptive parents in, in, the, in the listenership today, um, what would you say for them is that it uh, 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 is that uh, that part for thriving that they do because some of the stuff that you were talking about in thriving was um, environmental, some of it was kind of systemic and structural, and da 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 da, and, and some of it was about um, you know the life story work for for one was one of the big areas. So I guess um, that might be an area in terms of what you think you know what you've learned both as a as an adopted mum and the Chief Executive of Adoption UK, what would you share with the adoptive parents in the audience? Mm. About thriving, their own thriving. So I think there's one very important central thought in this, that unless the parents are thriving, they're going to really struggle to help the children to thrive. And we do tend to see, um, especially families where there are big challenges arising from those early experiences. We can see immense pressures being put on the children and the parents. Um, and the parents completely understandably often feel that, that it's their job to solve all the things that have gone wrong for that child before, they, before the child came to them. Um, and feeling like that, dealing with challenges in the home as a result of the child's developmental issues or trauma or learned behavior, all the things that have happened there, um, and dealing in a system that's that only offers partial support at best to, to adoptive families can place really intolerable pressures on the parents. Um, and sometimes it's very hard, especially in our culture, for, for parents to say, I need to look after me. But unless they are able to do that, and self-care is the word that gets banded around personally, yeah, that keen on that expression. But it's not bubble baths. Sorry? Self-care means bubble baths to me. Well, Sorry. yeah, and, and in my view, what we need to do is, is to have um, parents who are supported to be emotionally whole um, and resilient, that resilient word again, but able to um, process and handle their own emotions and their own mind and their own reactions, have their own boundaries um, and learn what they need to learn so that they can parent the child that they have in the way that that child needs. If we can get that better established in adoptive families and often that means far better support far earlier on which is what Adoption UK argues for um, then we're going to see many more thriving adoptive yeah. parents and if the parents are thriving there's a far higher chance the children will thrive as well. Yeah um, fascinating uh, do um, so if you're a, a well, first question is, do, I see a lot more adoptive parents being curious about support and help and, and, open, and open to looking for solutions um, than non-adoptive parents, strangely enough, because I've, I've worked in both. So they are more, they are more curious. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, if so, we can we got to look at put our own oxygen mask on first. Is is the phrase that one of my mentors um, uh, uses? Do to what extent do you think adopted parents see that? And to what extent? And, and the other extreme is to what extent do they just think it is all about the kids? And if I can just get the kids right, if I just can get the kids thriving, then I'll thrive. Yeah, yeah, they, they often. I mean, that's a very common thing for, for people, not just adoptive parents, to think, um, to, to put themselves last rather than first, not realising that that isn't going to work for them. Um, the oxygen mask story, you know, phrase is, 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 a, is a really good one and it is used a fair bit in adoption circles, as, as you've just said. Um, I think, though, that the trouble comes, people can intellectually agree and see that, but when it comes right down to it, if they have a distressed child, they would do anything to alleviate that child's distress and that becomes the overriding priority. I think that one of the things we need to really tackle, and this needs, needs to start right at the beginning of adopter preparation and approval, is move the mindset from being a supplicant who's competing to be good enough to be seen as worthy to adopt, which is kind of, kind of the mindset that a lot of adopters go through 
the prep and approvals process with partly because of, of the way it's set up um, and move it to to a place where they're less feeling like they've got to show themselves as worthy into one where they feel like they're equal partners in a system that is supposed to be looking for the best outcomes for the children and therefore they have permission to ask for help because at the moment we do see a lot of adopters who don't feel like they need to, they should go and ask for help from their social workers because they might be seen as not being good enough to adopt after all and we do see that fear a lot i think i think that if any social worker and it would be really interesting to ask this question of, a social, of an adoption social worker the ones i've talked to it really don't want that to be the case they would they they would encourage adopters to say when they're struggling so that the agency can be aware of it but that said there isn't always help available at the point of need and quite often um, families have to get into crisis before they actually access help um, and that's another factor that adopters will often feel like there's very little point in asking because they don't think they're going to get what they need and that also puts all the responsibility back on their parents and leaves them feeling um, very stressed and overwhelmed. Wow so I, I gave a flip comment about self-care being more than not bubble bath because that's what it kind of puts into me. But, um, you know, self-care, resilience, um, uh, people that are listening to this show right, are vulnerable enough to say that they don't know all the answers. And me too. Who, who knows all the answers to life? You know, none, I of, certainly us, don't. none of us. It's not a, it's not a math test, you know. Um, uh, I don't always oh, right. know all the answers in the master's either, Simon. Oh, right, okay. Well, you were a scientist, so you must have been kind of more left-brainy <laughs> in that zone, weren't you? Oh, it doesn't mean I can count, though. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, my failures, I, I was better at sciences than I was at, you know, English literature and uh, English language were my bottom grades, and I, I went into the family publishing business, so there you are. Um, but I am really particular about apostrophes. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the, um, if, if, you know, self, we, people that are listening to the show are, um, curious because otherwise they wouldn't be listening to the show. They'd be doing something else. So they're curious. They, they know they, they're, they're curious about being, uh, a lot of them will be curious about being, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a better human being a more resilient human being a more self-caring human being and um, so that they can be the change. They, they can model what they want their kids to be. They can be who their adopted kids want to be. So, so what would you, what's helped you, I guess, in that? And, and what, if, what, what have you seen helps? So what's helped you personally and what mm. else have you seen kind of like professionally? That, that helps that, that, help, that helps the adoptive parent thrive so that the adopted child i think there's two things there's two and, and this is true both for me personally and also from what i've seen through my job um one is it's really similar actually for both the parents and the young people um to know you're not alone to connect with other people who are also adoptive parents and share some of the experience and some of the journey because it's so easy to compare yourselves with the wrong people otherwise. Um, if you're comparing you as a parent to someone whose child has always slept through the night, I mean, this is actually not unique to adoption at all, um, but, but taking that as an example, my daughter didn't sleep at all for the first three years. Wow. Uh, and we were on our knees and it was only through talking to other adopters, which I could do very easily through work, but um, any adoptive parent can do through joining an adopters group then um, you know, we, we were able to understand what, what that was all about and what were the things we could do about it. Um, and that's just one, one little example. Yeah. Um, so not being alone, connect with other adopters, make sure you've got your, your gang um, is one. And the other one is to get informed, really get informed. And that means about therapeutic parenting, about the impacts of early trauma, about life story and identity, but also about where to go and ask for help. And if you can get connected and get informed, it'll be so, so much easier. It won't be easy, but it will be easier um, and more enjoyable as well as a journey. Um, for anyone who's wondering how to do that, of course, the um, Adoption UK does provide adopters groups, which people can, can come onto our website and have a look for, or, or, or get in contact. I imagine with the show, Simon, if you've got any information resources you can share, we can let you have the information. But those are the two, the two things that have really helped me. Yeah. 
Um, the identity piece is the one um, that, that I found the most useful in my journey. And um, funnily enough, it's, it's understanding that we are not our story. You know, we aren't. So I put a, I put a, I, 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 sorry, there's something else I was going to mention further on um, about uh, at the top was about um, positivity. And uh, I got accused of toxic positivity <laughs> uh, in a, in, in like, so how can, how can positivity, uh, how can positivity make life worse? Um, or another, the other, the other, the flip of that is how can worrying make anything better? How can worrying make anything better? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a worrier. I'm, I'm a world class at worrying, but I do know that it doesn't do me any good. You know what? What does is, you know, what what does good is is when we take action. So. I put this, I put a post in a, in a, an adoptee Facebook group and it says adoption is something that happens to us. It doesn't need to define us. I would agree with that entirely. Uh, and that was toxic positivity. And, and the reason I'm sh- kind of sharing that is, uh, is, is your point about, you know, uh, hanging out in the right groups, because I saw, I saw a, an adoptive parent come into a group for ad- adult adoptees and see all the stuff that they were talking about, about how adoption has ruined their lives, all the darkness stuff. I, I, and the adoptive parents said, why, why am I, 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 you know, I came here looking for, uh, I came here as a potential adoptive parent and all I see is darkness. I don't really want to do this now. And I put a comment on it, you know, just be careful. These sorts of groups, the people that are, are, are more vocal, you know, you, 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 you're swimming in, you're in, you, you found some sharks because you're in shark infested water, you know, go and go into a pond where there's some goldfish. I didn't say that, but do, do you know what I mean? there's, there's those, there's those spaces that we inhabit. But I think, I think this is quite an interesting debate because I mean, I've seen some of the, some of those debates as well on both sides. Um, and I think where, where any expression of, of positive or negative interpretations of adoption or any other thing, any other event, big life changing event, um, when they become toxic, and I'm not saying that your comment was, um, but it's when they're used to suppress or minimise someone else's perspective or a reality. And I think that that is the thing to be very, very careful about. So um, it's, it's down to each of us as individuals to um, come to terms with everything that's happened in our past and to form a view and make peace with who we are. Um, and as you said, adoption doesn't need to wholly determine that but neither should it be airbrushed out. It's a really, really important thing for both for adopters and more for people who are adopted, isn't it? Because it, it wholly alters everything about a childhood. Um, and and I, don't, I think we should be very respectful of, of the impact yeah. of even in happy adoptions, knowing that that child is growing up with different people in different places with different influences and different identity influences than they otherwise would have had. And that's something we have to know and come to terms with. I do think the flip side of that is where adopters um, refuse to acknowledge birth parents, for example, as important people and the reality of their child, whether or not they know them. Um, and we do see that as well, which is another form of of determinedly being so all right that reality gets a little bit lost. Um, and I think I think there's a very fine line to draw here, and it's going to be um, in different places for different individuals depending on their circumstances. Uh, I was thinking of asking a question, and I was thinking, mm, but no, you, you've given me a perfect uh, intro to it, so <laughs> I've got to ask it now. Yeah. So you talked about lines, okay? And this is a, a, a question I do not have an answer for, and it is it is uh, rhetorical, if, if that's the right word. I remember from English. It, it, it is, it is really just purely your opinion, okay? Um, and there, I don't think there is an answer. But, but I'll ask it anyway, because it's an interesting one for me. So where's the line between, um, and of course there isn't one. Uh, where, where's the line between- Where's the imaginary hypothetical line? And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Where's the imaginary hypothetical line between understanding trauma and m- moving past it? Well, that's a really good imaginary hypothetical line. I think you have to understand it in order to move past it, don't you? 
and quite often the um what we see and and some people some people choose to express this publicly and online and some people choose to express it internally and privately just amongst a circle of, of acquaintances but either way we do see a lot of expressions while people work through that because I think that it's almost inevitable that there will be some anger some some upset some sadness some grief even in very happy adoptive families those things did happen in the past um, and we do see that expressed as people debate this and I wouldn't say that in all cases it will be something that is moved past and, and there'll be clearer waters on the other side. I think in some cases, those things are gonna stay lifelong. And I think that's fine, that's fine. The line is where some, some person's genuine lived experience stops being okay to someone else and people start getting told they're wrong, in my view. Wow. So following up from that in terms of kind of just my personal experience on this is that, you know, my adoption went well. I um, I grew up in a, in a happy family, you know, there's usual issues, there were no, like, I had a little sister and my, um, you know, my dad didn't like it, never liked a boyfriends, but you know, who doesn't, you know, which parent, you know, which dad <laughs> doesn't, you know, it's, it just seems to be part of the course. Um, and so most of my challenges, emotional challenges as I got older were actually to do with going into the family business and not thinking I was good enough at business, really, mm. and struggling. And so they, they, the financial roller coaster, which was never that bad, really, you know, we were always okay. But that became an emotional roller coaster. And then when I got to the top of that roller coaster, as in it was, like, was good, I kind of, I had this moment where I, some adoption trauma came out and I was 40. Mm. Um, so for me and I, I it, so for me I'm a metaphor guy so for me it, it seemed to me like I was I take I was making a snowball out of my of trauma adoption trauma and then I was rolling it along the ground like like we do when we're a kid and we're making a snow person or a snow woman or a snowman and um, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger but I was the one doing the rolling um, and and um, that for me, I, I, I was talking to an adoption researcher about this before Christmas. She said, oh, that's confirmation bias. Mm. That's confirmation bias. And we're seeing a lot at the moment of, um, what do they call it? Uh, I've seen psychiatrists talking about this. They talk about pathologizing emotions. Yeah, yeah. And I think that for me, that's what I was doing, you know. That's I was, but that was me at forty. Mm. But I think you can come to these moments at any age, can't you? Um, I don't think there's an age cut off for insight. Um, for no, me, the big question, this is a, there's no sorry? age cut off. There's no age cut off for insight. Yeah, there's no <laughs> age cut off. For insight. I really hope there isn't anyway, because I'm probably past it otherwise. Um, but for me, for me, and this is a non-specialist. I'm not a therapist, so I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to tread on that turf. Um, but a lot of the question is, what do you make it mean? So I'm an adopter. Does that mean I'm a failed second rate mother? Well, actually, some people would think so. I'm choosing not to think that. I'm choosing to think that I get a chance yeah. in a different way to a wonderful child who I love. Um, but I could make it mean something more, more terrible than yeah. I'm choosing. And I think there are versions of that for pretty much every circumstance in your life. Yeah. And, and sometimes we choose to make things mean something that actually helps us. And sometimes we have to get out of that thought pattern and into a different one that's more more wholesome. Interesting, interesting, because my kind of insight journey um, around this emotions and consciousness and that sort of space that started with um, hearing, like really hearing that most of us aren't choosing most of the time. Mm. We're not we're not choosing what we think. We're not choosing what we feel and we're not choosing what we do, you know. So if I, you know, like I get just a trivial example. This, so if I get like I get impatient because I'm on the way to the swimming pool. Hallelujah. Tw in, in, in two weeks, I will be able to go. And get yes, I look forward to that impatience. Sorry? I look forward to that impatience. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm impatient, right? I mean, I'm trying to get to the swimming pool because I need to lose my lockdown uh, weight. Uh, and um, I, there's a tractor in the road, right? So, uh, like, and this, and I'm missing my slot, and I can only swim between these slots. I'm getting impatient. I'm not choosing. 
you know, like I'm sitting there, um, you know, banging. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this on my chair. You know, I'm, I'm banging my chair and I'm getting impatient. I'm okay. So I'm not choosing how I feel. So most of the time, most of us aren't choosing what we think, what we feel or what we do. Because so I wouldn't choose to, to lose my rag over the, about the tractor driver. Um, and uh, there's an incredible freedom to that because if we're not choosing, then it's not our fault. It's not. Yes, I like that. It's yeah. not our fault. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, the couple that I learned the most from in terms of the, my early in, you know, insights about insights. And, um, because we blame ourselves, don't we? And if, if we blame ourselves, then we wouldn't choose to blame ourselves. So we're not. So we're off the hook. And her, her book, she's, um, if people want to check it out, it's called, uh, she's called Elizabeth Ivory. Um, and the book is It's Not Your Fault. And, mm. and the subtitle is Because You're Not Choosing. You know? um, and it's uh, incredible. You know, I, I've spent day, you know, uh, courses with her and stuff, and the, but the, the, the book doesn't quite do it justice, but you know, it's the nearest thing mm. to, mm. to in COVID. That sounds fascinating. I like that idea. I'm not choosing yet. Mm. Um, so uh, that was a bit of a ramble, but um, yeah, the identity piece is the identity piece um, is the is the key one. Is the kind of the key one who we truly are. So um, underneath the trauma, so people say trauma is a part of us. Well, that's not. I think that's how I kind of used to see it, but now my take on this is really. So again, I'm a metaphor guy, so. I see as as uh, all of us as as that um, um, I'm holding for the listeners. I'm holding up a little piece of glass it, it, that looks like a diamond. So th- th- this this is who we truly are the the the, um, uh, the the perfect brilliance of the human soul or spirit. And as we go through life, manure happens to us. So manure off the tractor occasionally um, uh, of the guy on the. Uh, who's who's delaying me from my swimming pool so the manure um we go through manure in life and we get kind of manure in our heads trauma and it's and it's deep it's deeply disturbing manure but that manure kind of it's um it covers up the diamond it obscures the diamond but it doesn't change the diamond you know that's that's kind of so the identity is is the diamond. We identify with the diamond, not the manure that we've been yeah. through or there. That's really interesting. And, and what you're saying is making me think more carefully about what I think. So, and I must admit, I would probably see it in a less um, polarized way between the unsullied potential of the self and then the non-sweary podcast manure of yeah. the world. Um, and I probably would see it more as a plant growing and we grow around the rocks that are getting in the way of the roots and we twist towards the light. Um, and that, that is, wow. that's how we end wow. up in the world Wow! as plants do. But when trauma happens, that is an ax blow to the stem or a, a huge impermeable barrier to the roots or something that blocks the light. It's real. It happens. It does change the way we grow, but we can either grow around some, some people are able to accept that that's not accept in a, in a conscious choice way, but it has happened and it changes the development, but that can, the development can still continue. And in others, it's something that's much more imposing and difficult and the plant needs some help to get through that trauma. And I think, I mean, it's, it's well established that trauma can affect child development. Yes. Sorts of ways. And those are real changes. I'm very interested in is the way to which in which therapeutic parenting or external therapy provision can help that development resume a more natural course. And when we're talking about children who've experienced abuse and neglect, um, we know that's oxygen for the developing brain, parental love, support, um, stability, nurturing, all those things. They're, they're the oxygen that allows the brain to grow and develop and where they're absent or confusing or, or, or wrong, that development course has changed. The trajectory is altered in that child, um, but it doesn't have to be altered forever. Yeah. Is why I'm so keen on early help and early support for adoptive families, because where a, 
the parents are helped to, and supported to, to therapeutically parent their child and where the child can receive that and start receiving some of those missing things, we know that that developmental trajectory can become more healthy. It doesn't take away what's happened. The plant still had one of its branches chopped off, but with support, it could grow a different one. And I think I, that's probably more the way I see it. The manure, of course, is very important because with my background as an environmental scientist, that would be the fertilizer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, I was, this is a non-swearing podcast. So, you know, I was using manure for another word. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, look, I can look back on the, the other word and see it as manure. Um, so without that, it wouldn't have helped me to grow for the kind of the insights. So, um, uh, and I think that what you've been in the last hour or so, can you believe we've been talking that long? I don't know, 50 minutes or so. It is. Um, what you've been um, uh, is, 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 the, is the sunlight oh. that the plants are, are growing to, because that's, once we can see the light, you know, once we see light at the end of the tunnel, once we see light, then we're kind of like, our, 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 the plant is drawn towards that. Um, and, and that's what keeps that what keeps us all growing. And I, I love the fact that, you know, you said there's no there's no age limit on, on insight because the more we grow, you know, if, so the more we grow as uh, adults, the, the more that the, the mm. kids in our lives will be inspired to grow because they will do what we do um, and not what we say. Because that's what kids do. The kids, they do what we do, not what we say. Absolutely. My dad, and this isn't a final thought perhaps on, on um, the trauma that probably all of us have experienced, but some people much more than others. My dad, um, one of his great bon mores was always, living well is the best revenge. Um, and I've always really liked it. He always used it in a very tongue in cheek way, but I, I don't think it's bad word to live, words to live by. Um, it, it helps you to look forward a little bit more than perhaps you otherwise might. Okay. Fantastic. So um, uh, the uh, the website is adoption. Adoptionuk.org.uk. UK. Yeah. Okay. I will. I will send you some links if you want to put them in the podcast. Yeah, there. we'll put them in the in the show notes, and that's great. Thank yeah. you very much for uh, coming on and being that uh, being that light for us plants. That is the nicest thing that's happened to me today, you saying that. And that includes the chocolate Easter bunny my children are giving me. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks a lot. Lovely to talk to you, Simon. Thank you for, for coming on.